The thing my parents wanted more than anything else was to be treated like everybody else. They didn't want a free ride. They weren't out to rip anybody off or insult anybody. They just wanted the same consideration when they went into a store, when they voted, when they drove down the street, if they went to a park. They wanted to be treated like everybody else. This is Diary of a Nation. I'm your host, Christina Zlotnick. My podcast explores the human experience. In the summer of 1957, Michael Cameron Ward's family left New York for New Hampshire and became the first black family in the town of Lee. Mike worked as a software engineer and, a few years ago, transitioned to writing to honor his father's dying wish to share his life story. Mike is the author of two books, A Colored Man in Exeter and The Colored Folks Ain't Gonna Make It. This interview was recorded in the front yard of Mike's childhood home, where he lives to this day. Mike, your cousin traced your family's ancestry to the enslaved woman, Sarah Taylor, who was born in 1854. She was the property of Army General Zachary Taylor, our nation's 12th president. He was a third cousin, once removed, of Confederate General Robert E. Lee, the general who committed treason to preserve slavery, the general who is still revered by some Americans as the Southern Saint. Slavery is part of your family's history. Oh, yeah. And on my mother's side, I think his name was Clifford. Um, he was sold sometime in, I guess, eight, sometime between 1861 and 1863 from their plantation where they were in Virginia to someplace in Kentucky. And something that I have discovered is that there's a lot of people now who, through revisionist history, have tried to reframe the Confederate argument. My great-uncle, great-granduncle Clifford, he was sold. We don't know where he went. Apparently he was difficult. So my mother's grandmother, uh, Miss Virgie, was born in 1866. She was the youngest child in a family and the first one born not as a slave. And she asked my grandmother, Elzina, to go to the Juneteenth um, celebrations to see if she could find Clifford. Juneteenth, the holiday celebrating the emancipation of enslaved people. Well... When someone asks you to do something, you want to do it, you try to do it, but if you're working whatever, or you've got other things going on, it's, it's hard often, because the Juneteenth sort of rotated around the country. And she um, finally went, I think, in 57 or 58, and it was too late, because the people of, from that area or from Kentucky, that she tried to talk to, were so old that they didn't have any memories that she could use. So we lost Clifford. And the craziest thing I had about the Confederacy was this fellow, this was about a month ago, he had a picture of the United States flag and a Confederate flag and saying that if we ride together, we win. And I said, no, I'm a black person. I don't ride with Confederates. They enslaved and sold my family. Oh, man, that was 100 years ago. I said, that doesn't change the matter. That doesn't change the fact. Oh, you're all hung up on race. And I said, no, I'm not hung up on race. I said, do Jews join forces with Nazis? No, we don't. I'm a Jew. Yeah. And they said, oh, whoa, whoa, see, you're, 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 you're warping things. I said, how am I warping things? Well, that's not what the Confederate flag stands for. I said, what? 
No, it stands for individualism and rebellion and going against the uh, established order. I said, yeah, and the established order in the United States was that slavery was not part of the country. That was not something that they were willing to tolerate. And 600,000 people died for that. They do not have a good grasp of history. And the worst thing about it is, for the individuals I'm speaking of, they cannot be bothered to read more than three or four paragraphs of anything. And so their ability to actually comprehend the stances that they're taking is extremely compromised. Stupidity is the inability to learn. That's stupid. Ignorance is lack of knowledge. Sometimes they combine, but not always. My mom said, racists are either ignorant or stupid. An ignorant person can be taught. A stupid one can't, so don't waste your time on them. Your father, Harold, would have been 100 years old this year. By age 10, he was an orphan. During the Great Depression, his father, your grandfather, had been driven from the family because of his dark skin. Because he was coal black, yep. His mother died after contracting tuberculosis. Could you describe your father's childhood? My father's position in that family was as uh, basically an irritant. He was not accepted by virtue of his skin color uh, as a full member of the family. He was like this distraction they had to deal with. Because once Gwendolyn, his mother, died, here's this chocolate brown baby in a family of white folk, of very, very light-skinned colored folks. And back then, if you were light, bright, and damn near white, you didn't associate with anyone darker than you. You just didn't do it. Because if you were passing as white, full faith and credit, you did not want to give that up. That's a privilege. You did not want the Klan to show up. You did not want people to start treating you differently or with no respect. So your race was hidden. And the interesting thing is, the darker you were, the further away from equality you were. So, Dad's grandfather, Charles Posey, he was a minister. And when his daughter was thrown out, when he threw his daughter out of the house at age 14, she was pregnant when she was 15 and had Dad. And my grandfather, Dad's father, was, quote, a coal black nigger, period. And... Now there's this chocolate brown baby in a light-skinned family, and that just didn't cut it. And so when my grandmother, because Gwen was too young to take care of a baby because she was on her own, so her mother took dad in. And great-grandfather Posey said, get that nigger bastard out of my house. And Carrie, Carrie, that's dad's uh, grandmom, wouldn't give him up. And so they got divorced. And so she raised him for a while. And then Gwen met a guy named Weeks. And he was of, he was a Caribbean lineage. And uh, she married him and had another baby called Gwendolyn, after her. And Weeks was fine with that, except he was also very light-skinned. And he did not want that little nigger bastard in my house. And my dad said, I broke up three marriages before I was three years old. (laughs) And, you know, that's about the only funny thing about my dad's childhood. Um, It was brutal. It was so brutal, he didn't tell me anything about it any details 
until about six weeks before he died. And it was arresting. On my dad's 100th birthday, the Indonesian Navy lost a sub. And that incident made me think about the story I wrote called A Sailor. And Harold was a sailor. Last Wednesday, April 21st, would have been the 100th birthday of my father, Harold E. Ward, Petty Officer First, U.S. Navy, retired. During World War II, he served in the surface Navy on the USS San Francisco, CA-38. He was a veteran of Pearl Harbor and the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal, where he was awarded a Purple Heart. But what should have been a smile of remembrance was dimmed by events of the day. Like the USS Thresher, 57 years and 11 days prior, contact was lost with KRI Nangala 402 of the Indonesian Navy after she submerged to exercise depth. And just like the Thresher, her hull imploded after exceeding her maximum dive depth. In each case, the only evidence of their fate was a scattering of debris and an oil slick floating on the surface. They were dissimilar ships. One was a brand new nuclear submarine, the other a veteran 40-year-old diesel electric. However, they shared a commonality of all submersibles. Every dive is a risk. And it is their unquestioned acceptance of that risk that separates submariners from their surface-born brothers. From the colored folks ain't gonna make it. A sailor. It is a visual that would be recognized by a member of the greatest generation. It is a visual that would be recognized by someone who had been in combat. It is a visual that for many of us must be deduced as a PTSD episode. In mid-August of 2000, I was 48 years old. I had stopped in to see my parents. Mom was out for the evening. Harold, my dad, sat hunched over, stone silent, his face drawn tight, elbows on knees, his gaze bore-sided at the kitchen floor three feet in front of him. His eyes reflected horrors that had escaped from the vault in his memory that protected him from the past. A glass of Jack Daniels was held with both hands to keep it from shaking. It was far too late in my life, and after his ended, that I understood the meaning of that pose. I remember seeing it first when Medgar Evers was killed, and then I saw it during the 1964 Mississippi burning incident and at several other junctures over my lifetime. But I had never deciphered its significance. But it was on that day after the Kursk, a Russian submarine was lost with 118 men undergoing sea trials that I understood the pose, but not the name. Among sailors, there is no distinction between surface vessels or submarines. You are all men of the sea. And for a sailor, a ship does not sink. She dies, and often her crew with it. Dad's anger and disgust with the Russian government and Navy was monumental in proportion. But it was no less than that what I remember as a young boy with the loss of the thresher and her complement of 129 on her shakedown cruise out of Portsmouth in 1963. He swore, they keep sending them out in those boats for sea trials before they're ready. There's no reason for it. There's no war on. In the life of a boat, an extra week or month isn't going to matter. They keep showing off and killing us. That bastard Putin doesn't give a damn about the boys in that sub. He just wasted their lives to make himself look tough. He was talking to himself now. I no longer existed. He had entered a different dimension, a time tunnel returning him to World War II Pacific combat. A tear rolled down his face and stopped, frozen on his cheek. In the world of men at sea, there are always two enemies, the ocean and your adversary. In all cases, your opponent is secondary. You must come to terms with the ocean first before you can defeat your adversary. It is this that my father understood. It is this which rekindled his PTSD. It is this that reduced him to tears and shaking hands when the Kursk was abandoned by her navy and her country. For those who go down to the sea in ships, it is thus. When a ship dies, all sailors feel her loss. And Harold was a sailor. 
the U.S. Navy was his adversary, too. Your father, he graduated in 1939 from Mm -hmm. Atlantic City Tech in New Jersey Mm -hmm. as an apprentice electrician. Joined the Navy in 1940 to become an electrician Mm -hmm. and see the world. But segregation dictated otherwise. Could you explain what happened? If you chase it all the way back, a quarter of the Continental Navy in 1774, 76, 78, were black. And even in the military, during the Civil War, the Union conscripted black soldiers. They weren't officers, but they were conscripted and they fought. My dad's uh, uncle, he was a Buffalo soldier with the 10th colored. And at 15, he went up San Juan Hill with a trumpet in support of Teddy Roosevelt. He later fought for the French as an American soldier because that's what they did. The U.S. Army did not want black soldiers. The French needed bodies, so they sent them the brothers. And they received so many medals for bravery from the French that the U.S. government told the French government to stop giving black soldiers' medals because they were afraid of what was going to happen when the war ended and all these guys showed up at home wearing shirts full of medals and bursting with pride. See, part of the willingness of black men to join the military in defense of the country was because they thought that if if they proved themselves on the battlefield, equality would result. Nothing could be further from the truth. And to set the table, when Woodrow Wilson was elected president, he was inaugurated, and it was either the Wednesday, he was inaugurated on like a Monday, and it was either Wednesday or Thursday that he segregated the armed forces. Now, this was in spite of a history of meritorious service. So when my father joined the Navy in 1940 to get away from uh, being treated as the bastard of the family, he rolled in with his electrician certificate as an apprentice, and the U.S. Navy made him a servant. A mess attendant. Yes. And the issue was that they didn't tell black recruits that they would go through a segregated boot camp, the same boot camp requirements as a white sailor, but when they were done, they would not be allowed to touch a weapon or ammunition or they'd be court-martialed. They would be kept in separate barracks and they would not have a rating of seamen first. They were unrated personnel, employees of the U.S. Navy, and subject to all the terms and conditions of the UCMJ. So, Dad didn't know any of this. Your dad said his rank was lower than whale shit. Yeah, he did. And it was. It was. And the problem was, you know, you're looking at people, the full slice of black manhood, ranging from, didn't graduate from high school, to college graduates slinging plates and washing clothes. And in battle, the only thing that black sailors did was act as stretcher, bearers, attendants, or uh, damage control fighting fires. So the most dangerous positions on the ship, that's where the brothers went. So in my dad's case... He had to go out onto the deck of a warship in battle to recover casualties. So if somebody shoots at you with a rifle, there's a good chance they'll miss. If you're anywhere in the vicinity of a high-explosive naval shell, you're probably going to die. And that's what happened to his best friend who threw himself on top of the corpsman that they were working with. 
Um, Leonard R. Harmon, he received the Navy Cross, and he was the first black sailor ever to have a capital ship in the USS Navy named after him. Was that on the USS San Francisco at Pearl Harbor? No, it was at the USS San Francisco at Guadalcanal. Um, the Pearl Harbor experience for the San Francisco was to stand there and watch because they were in the dry dock. The Japanese, believing in the code of Bushido, attacked viable warships. The San Francisco, the turrets were out of the ship. They had no guns, no major guns. Uh, and the ship was in pieces in a dry dock. So they did not engage in combat, per se, in Pearl Harbor. But in, at the Naval Battle of Guadalcanal, they were the flagship for the strike force. The Navy was segregated, and there was nothing anyone in the military or the Navy could do about it. The thing that really pissed him off was he had this uh, test to qualify him for to go from mess attendant three to mess attendant two. <laughs> and they had this place setting diagram and he misplaced one of the spoons. That was enough to fail? Yeah, he was pissed. He said, those fuckers. He says, <laughs> you know, who gives a shit what spoon they use, you know? And it was things like, there's a picture in the guide in the uh, ratings manual of a mess man looking down the length of a table to make sure that all of the silverware is one inch from the edge. That's what the military does. They do that with your uniform, too. Yeah. And so when it was all over, um, they desegregated the Navy. And he thought, well, geez, I'll get to be an engineer, a uh, electrician. No. Because even though the military was desegregated, it's like any law. People have to obey it. And he decided, based on his own experience, because he wanted to have a family, he said, you know what? I'll stay in food service, and I'll never be hungry again. When he retired and then later bought his own restaurant, one of the reasons he told me he bought the restaurant was because by owning a restaurant and having his kids work for him, they would never be hungry because they could always get a job and they would always eat. So he retired in 1959. He was an E6 at mm -hmm. retirement, yep. petty officer first class. And he eventually opens Harold's Place, a yep. diner in Exeter. Mm -hmm. You worked there as a child and you saw firsthand how he treated people with dignity. How did your father's values shape you? The thing my parents wanted more than anything else was to be treated like everybody else. They didn't want a free ride. They weren't out to rip anybody off or insult anybody. They just wanted the same consideration when they went into a store, when they voted, when they drove down the street, if they went to a park. They wanted to be treated like everybody else. And the thing that they understood much better than I did until much later in my life was that the people here had no experience with black folks. Zero. And when I say that, you know, there was an occasional person, yeah, well, I, I, I partnered with a black guy in the service. Because <laughs> the, military, the military was a great combiner. It was. And so... And he, is. Yeah. He didn't want anything special. He just wanted what we deserved as citizens. You were the first black family here in the town of Lee and were sitting in the front yard of your childhood home where you yep. still live. Can you see the sign there? On yes, the Solar Vista. Yeah, I got The name it. of the property. I got to fix that. Um, the walk is cracked. I have to fix that sometime. The people my dad knew in Exeter and Newmarket, they regarded him as one of us. Okay? He worked hard. He was generous. He had a sense of humor. And in case of, like, the Legion, he was one of the brothers. He fought, just like everybody else. The American Legion. Yeah. But what was interesting was talking to a fellow who grew up 
during that period and knew my father really well. He said, well, Mike, all the families down by Dodge's Agway, you know, he says, that was a poor working class section of town. And a lot of those folks ate here at the trackside or Jerry's. He said, and your parents, he says, they show up. And, you know, your dad had trouble, but man, once he got going, he said, so our parents would point to your dad as the model of how to succeed in America. We'd never even seen a black guy before. And he said, and the craziest thing was, he said, I remember one of my buddies went down and, you know, wanted to see the, wanted to see the colored man. So the waitress said, oh, you want to talk to Harold? Uh, yeah. This is a young kid. And so dad finished what he was doing and came out high and sat down and talked to the kid. And they were like, you know, fist and glove for years because the kid said, you know, I'd never have seen a colored man before and I wanted to talk to one. I talked to him. He's a nice guy. He's really smart. Knows all kinds of stuff. And he says, you know, and sometimes I'd have problems that I couldn't talk about with my parents. I'd go talk to Harold. And he did that for a lot of kids in Exeter and also in Durham and wherever else he went. Your father married your mother, Virginia, in 1945, and by 1957, your family fled Brooklyn for mm-hmm. New Hampshire because yep. you and your brother were mugged by gang members. Mm-hmm. That's why you're even here. Yeah, well, we also caught someone looking in the window at one in the afternoon at my seven-year-old sister, uh, which may- means that I had another have another sister as well. So now we're all targets. And Dad was in the Navy, on a ship, and not around. And... In a case like that, what do you do? Do you stand there and just take, let your family get beaten into oblivion? And the answer was no. So we left. Your father had a number of different jobs here in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Chef, fire alarm system installer, mm-hmm. bar owner, mm-hmm. elementary school janitor, mm-hmm. part-time police officer here yeah. in Lee. Yeah. And it was said that he was the only adult that an entire generation of kids respected around here. Mm-hmm. That says a lot about yeah. his character. One of them still lives across the street over there. He had his cadre, that's for sure. He didn't even retire as a police officer until he was in his 80s. Yep, and he retired because, hey, look, I got two artificial hips. I'm not chasing anybody down. And the, the police, he said, well, geez, Harold, just call for backup. We really don't want you to quit. Because, <laughs> see, the thing about it was, you could talk to my dad about anything and you know there is a strong um, military presence in police a lot of policemen are ex-military and for them to deal with a military man of another generation and the things that he went through they respected the hell out of him and he had a great sense of humor. And that and his ability to just relate to people, you know, um, the police really, really liked him. Your father, when he bought the diner, mm-hmm. became the first black merchant in town since the Revolutionary War. Well, I have to be more precise. The first black restaurateur. And people raved about his corned beef and cabbage. Yeah fried seafood, barbecue. What are some of your favorite meals that your father cooked? Well, you know, that's kind of funny, and here's why. My dad didn't cook for us much. We cooked for the public. We came home and mom cooked for us. Oh. (laughs) Okay, so... Who was better? uh, Well, that's just it. What are you doing? Are you feeding a huge number of people, or are you just feeding a small group? Dad could do both. Dad was an excellent restaurant cook. And Mom was an excellent uh, home cook. I'll never forget, years ago, we had some party somewhere. And Dad was, like, really basic. He made a lemon cake from scratch with frosting. And he got a piece of cardboard and some wax paper and put the cake on it, put it in a box, and took it to this party. 
And it sort of sat there on the side. And Harold cut a couple slices. And, you know, this was when I was in my, I think my 40s. And some of the women, my friends, the wives and stuff, came over. Oh, whose cake is that? Oh, Harold made it. Oh, really? I mean, like he took the lemon and, you know, oh, the got zest. the zest for flavoring and some juice. And it was just this really not too sweet, not too tart. And the women just like ate it up. And some of them were shaking their head because like, I can't do this, <laughs> you know. But um, no, they were both very good. Uh, and I wouldn't rate them because they did different things. Could you read the hamburger story? Chainsaw or axe? This was a teaching moment for the town of Lee. Being a city kid, my father, Harold, had no experience with outdoor equipment of any kind. But when they asked for able-bodied volunteers to help clear the lot for the Mastway Elementary School in Lee, New Hampshire, he offered to assist. Well, uh, Harold, you ever uh, drop a tree with a chainsaw? No. Ever cut down a tree with an axe? No. Not really sure what use you can be to us. Are you going to feed the crew? Oh, no, everybody brings their own food. I'll handle it. And he did. For the entire next week afterwards, we received phone calls from Lee Housewives asking to speak to Mr. Ward. And although they sounded desperate, they were too embarrassed to tell Mom what it was they wanted. But whatever the problem was, it had to be solved. Finally, as a last resort, they contacted Marion Stevens, a woman who was known to be a friend of Dad's. She called him at 8.45 one evening. Hi, Harold. This is Marion Stevens. Yes? Uh, Harold, um, some housewives asked me if you could please tell them what you put on the hamburgers at the site clearing last weekend. What? Well, you see, there's some husbands in town who won't eat their wives' hamburg or beef anymore until they taste like yours. They're besides themselves. Their husbands work in the woods and fields. As country wives, they were responsible for the care and feeding of the family unit. There was nothing more humiliating than having your primary meal rejected by your husband. Dad was, if nothing else, a gentleman, so he told her. The next Saturday, he went down to Newmarket to the first national food store. Charlie LeBranch, the store manager, hustled right up to him. Harold, what the heck did you do? What? I've got all these women calling the store and coming down from Lee asking for Worcestershire sauce. I usually sell a bottle every six months. Now it's flying off the shelves. Can't keep it in stock. Salt, pepper, and Worcestershire sauce? Dad laughed so hard he cried. And so it was that the colored man, who did not know how to use a chainsaw or an axe, introduced Worcestershire sauce to the good people of Lee, New Hampshire. Great story. I was mostly raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and to this day, it's a highly segregated city divided by a highway. Oh, I know. Black people are concentrated on the north side. Mm-hmm. And one very painful event I know. in North Tulsa. First time the Army ever bombed a U.S. city. Tulsa Race Massacre, which took place 100 years ago this spring. A white mob attacked the area of the city known as Black Wall Street killing hundreds of black people and destroying 35 city blocks. About 10,000 black people were left homeless. No one was ever prosecuted. I was never taught about that event as a child, and I only stumbled upon the story when I was assigned to write a college term paper on a subject of my choosing, and that story caught my attention. Back in the late 1980s, when I was doing the research, I found the microfilm of newspaper pages, and I would see entire articles cut from the paper, which I later learned were attempts to hide the massacre from history. Here we sit in New Hampshire, where back in 1835, the state's first integrated school was established. Mobs forced out the students from Noyes Academy, fired cannon at the homes of supporters, and used oxen to pull the school from its foundation. The building was later burned to the ground. 
why do you think some of us still fiercely resist efforts to reckon with our nation's history of racism? Unlearning is hard. And if you have never met or engaged with any black people or people of any other different color in your life, your information comes from your media sources. For a long time, the most racist newspaper in the country was the Union Leader. Union Leader here in New Hampshire. Yeah. Who you write for. <laughs> yeah, that's what's so crazy. I'll never forget, I was at the Memorial Union at UNH in 73 or 4, and they had a editorial that said that black people were savages. How can they make that determination when there is no significant population of black people in this state? But they made the statement, and I had a, a friend of mine, he was from Nashville, he'd been in the military, and he said, well, Mike, you know, you got to understand, it's not talking about you, it's talking about blacks in the cities. I said, oh, so this observation is based on the behavior in black of blacks in New Hampshire cities, right? No, 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 almost no blacks in New Hampshire cities. I said, well, what's it based on? He goes, well, you know, a place like New York and Chicago. So... If someone has a closely held belief, it takes a lot to get them to reject it. What I try to do when I write and when I talk to people is basically say, hey, look, we are people just like you. A parent wants a better life for their kid. That's universal. Palestinians, blacks, Northern Irish, Americans, everybody wants a better life for their kid. I said, and if the law is being applied unequally, such that that dream is denied, there's going to be trouble. And it doesn't matter what race or religion the person is. That's how it works. If I'm not getting what I'm owed, at some point the dam is going to break. If we hadn't had COVID last year, you probably never would have heard of Ahmad Arbery. You probably wouldn't have heard of Breonna Taylor. And you'd have seen some brief clips of Mr. Floyd. Because there was a, a news vacuum. There was nothing else going on except for these instances of extrajudicial punishment by individuals and law enforcement against black people. That's the fact. And the worst part of it is, this isn't new. This stuff has been going on for years. This didn't just start happening. So, I won't get into systemic racism, but the main thing is, this isn't new to us. And it's new to white America. Nothing happens in the United States of America unless it, or until, it affects the white middle class. Look at the war on drugs. Yeah. So all those fellas are still in jail for crack, possession, use, whatever. But by God, the plumber's kid, the judge's daughter, they've got an opiate addiction. Well, let's get them treatment. Not 20 to life. And that's a fundamental difference. Then... We compound it by licensing the sale of marijuana while people are doing 20 and 40 to life for the sale of marijuana. So when it hits white, the white middle class, a change going to come. But if it's just us, nope, not so much. Looking back at my brother's life, he passed on in 2014. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, and my dad died 11 months later. <laughs> Great time. So, but my brother persevered. And when he was denied something that he wanted or deserved, he'd go on to the next thing. 
So he joined the Marines, qualified for OCS. Officer Candidate School. Wanted to do uh, complete OCS training and become a pilot. 1960. His captain called him in after his test came back. And he said, you passed the qualification for OCS. But I'm not forwarding it. I wasn't good enough for Marine Air. I'll be goddamned if I'm going to promote a nigger to do it. So Ted did not become a pilot. And then he went to UNH and studied theater. University of New Hampshire? Yeah, University of New Hampshire. And he went to the Hampton Playhouse and auditioned for the part of the sailor in A Taste of Honey. I believe it was like the first year off Broadway. And Hampton Playhouse, big summer stock place, okay? So he gets the part. He comes home totally jacked, totally happy. About five or six o'clock that night, the phone rang. They told him, well, we had to drop you from the play, from, from the production. Well, why? Well, the sponsors of the um, Playhouse won't allow blacks to perform on stage here. And they told me that if, and this is the director, they told me that if I protested, we, they will just get another director. Okay. So, those kinds of experiences changed my focus in a lot of ways. So, for instance, I got into the computing industry, and quite frankly, I didn't get into it for a career. I got into it because it was a job. I had no concept of career. Because all I cared about was that I make enough money so that I wasn't hungry or cold. And that, you know, coming from what was at some points the poorest family in the damn school district, right? I didn't really think of uh, tech as a career. Even though I'd been in it for 13 years, it was still a job. And then I went to work for Cisco Systems. And let's just say I ended up working as a release engineer for a team of eight full bull MIT graduates. You want to talk about competitive suckers? Jesus, they are something else. But they saw that I knew what I was doing. And if I didn't know something, I'd spend the extra time to research to figure it out. And I did really well with them. It was pretty cutthroat. But that was okay because one thing you learn, when you walk in a door, my expectations and reactions are different than yours. Because I was always the first or only black person in the room. What's that like? Remember what I told you about being twice as good? Yes. Well, now apply it. So if I come in the door, I got to be damn good. I got to be one of the top two in what I do. Because if I don't, I'll be relegated to the trash heap of technology. You've written two books, A Colored Man in Exeter and The Colored Folks Ain't Gonna Make It. Mm -hmm. A third volume of stories that you're now writing will focus on your mother. Mm -hmm. Could you share part of her story reading from volume two? Titanium Rose. Definitions. Rose, a woody perennial flower, flowering plant of the genus Rosa or the flower it bears. They form a group of plants that are often armed with sharp prickles. Titanium, T-I. A lustrous transition metal with a silver-gray color, low density and high strength. Virginia Elizabeth White Ward was my mother. She had been smoking since age 15. When she was 86, she developed lung cancer. The radiation used to kill it destroyed her lungs. Over time, her respiratory function diminished. Her last eight months were spent in a slow downward spiral. But assisted by her oxygen, ex oxygen exchanger, she had proudly made it to her 89th birthday on August 2nd. 
But now it was the middle of October. Dad had stressed out over her condition and not been taking care of himself. He ended up in a short-term rehab facility to get revitalized. Until then, Mom had been humming along at home with him. But she couldn't be left to tend to herself. So she was moved to the Hyder House Hospice at the Stratford County Complex in Dover, New Hampshire, for a short-term stay while Dad recovered. At this point, Mom had achieved that stasis that medical professionals marvel about. She was supposed to be dead, but Virginia, forever the contrarian, was not. The previous week, the Lee plant thugs had come by the house. These were the woman that ran the plant booth at the town fair with her for 40 years. Mom was established as the African Violet Queen of the Lee Fair. The plant thugs took her out for a spin around all the roads in Lee in a hired limousine with chilled champagne. She came back boosted, positive, and happy. Then she checked into Hyder House. I sat with her that afternoon. She looked out the window across a field and into the surrounding woods. This is a nice place. I saw her again the next day. But this time, when we looked out the window, it was snowing. Snow on October 21st? She said nothing about it, but she seemed to deflate. The sight of it meant having to endure yet another New Hampshire winter while in declining health. Unbeknownst to me and the rest of the family, she decided to pull the plug. It was several days before I saw her again. This time, on my way to her room, her nurse, a young woman, pulled me aside. She's going. It won't be long now. This startled me. I went into her room. She was no longer the person that I had laughed and joked with days prior. She lay unmoving, mute. My mother was dying. Hi, Mom. It's Mike. I said this loudly because, for the dying, hearing is the last of the senses to fail. She gasped. Mac! Would she say anything more? I wondered and waited for several moments. No, just that single expulsion of breath and silence. She lay on her side and stared back at me sightlessly. Her face was thin and drawn, but not wrinkled. I smiled as a thought, if you're black, you don't crack, slipped through my mind. <laughs> that dynamic silvery-gray bun, the crown that she had always pulled her hair back into, was no longer. Now it was a loose assemblage of exhausted, frizzled, limp white strands, splayed listlessly on her head. Her irises were deep, dark, bottomless pools. Whatever she saw was no longer of this, this earth and beyond my grasp. Her breathing was slow and measured, almost as if she was saving her strength. That full, radiant, vibrant smile, the sharp quip, mellow laugh, and dancing eyes, were now only memories. Without warm-up, I sang one of her favorite songs, A Bridge Over Troubled Water. When I reached into the upper registers, the ones that I used to rip through with total abandon in my twenties, I took it easy. But when I got to the last verse, I dialed it up. Ever the showman, I didn't care who heard me. I was in a hospice, damn it! The people in here are gonna die. If today is their day, they won't enter that long good night in silence if I can help it. I bounced my voice off the ceiling. I belted the last chorus, primal and raw. The emotional stress and over-singing caused my voice to crack in the last two lines. I ignored it and powered through. I gave my mother all that I had, and that's all that counted. And then, for the only time in 50 years, tears came. I stood up, leaned over, and put my hand on her shoulder. I love you, Mom. Thanks for putting up with me. It couldn't have been easy, but I made it. Brian, Rachie, and all of your great-grandchildren are doing great. Don't worry about Dad. We'll take care of him. We're all going to miss you. But it's time for you to say hello to Grandma Elzina and little brother Brucie. Goodbye, Mama. I kissed her on her lips. I left the room dazed. My body was ringing from the exertion of singing, but now minus half of its life's source. I walked past the nurse's station. Excuse me, sir, was that you singing? 
The same nurse as before asked me quietly. I stopped. Yes. I'm sorry, was I too loud? No, it was beautiful, lovely. Thank you. It was her favorite song. I just wanted to make sure that she heard me. I'm sure she did. I like your mother. I talked to her before... She paused and then continued. She was a sweet, sweet lady. I'm glad you spent time with her. A lot of people come in here and don't interact or spend time with their relatives. They act as if they're afraid of them. It's like they're checking a box on a form or something. They just go in, look, and then leave as fast as they can. You're a good son. Her eyes were blinking rapidly. It was only then that I realized she was crying too. Then we stood, two total strangers, and held each other for several moments. After releasing our embrace, we stepped away, back into our own separate worlds. The titanium rose in Dad's fisted glove left us a day later on October 25th, 2009. It was exactly one week shy of her and Dad's 64th wedding anniversary. She was 89 years old. Mike, thank you for sharing your family's stories today. Thanks for having me. You can order Mike's books through his website, sketchesoflee.com. Would you be willing to help me attract new listeners? Rating and reviewing my show through Apple Podcasts helps people discover the podcast. Telling your friends to listen and sharing this episode on your social media channels also helps. Please and thank you. If you have a story you'd like to share, or if you know an interesting person I should contact, message me on social media. Or drop me a line at diaryofanation at gmail.com. Find Diary of a Nation through your favorite podcast app. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Diary of a Nation. Diary of a Nation.